morning we'll continue our overview of the scriptures with a study of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Uh, the next three weeks we'll be dealing with books in pairs, uh, historical books of the Old Testament in pairs. 1st and 2nd Samuel will be this week. Anyone want to take a guess what next week is? Kings, 1st and 2nd Kings, and then 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Very good. Uh, traditionally, 1st and 2nd Samuel is uh, viewed actually as a combined set with 1st and 2nd Kings. In fact, um, older translations of the English Bible will, will, will usually uh, title 1st Samuel the first book of Samuel, commonly called the first book of the Kings. And 2nd Kings is subtitled commonly called the fourth book of the Kings. Now that comes from... Uh, from the, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Bible in uh, just before the first century, and it was adapted into the Roman Catholic Latin Vulgate in the 400s, and it, it stuck around for a while. They are two separate books, but they tell one combined story. So next week's lesson will uh, reflect pretty heavily on what we discussed today. Uh, I, I, just to give kind of a, an illustration of of what I'm trying to get at here, it's almost as if First uh, and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings are, for lack of a, of a better analogy, uh, the same film franchise. The same characters are in it. The same things are progressing, but the writer has changed. But it's the same unfolding story. It's kind of a way to think about it. Question: Like in Chronicles, when it mentions the, 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 it tells more about it in the. Of the kings, yeah, Samuel and kings. I believe so. Yes, depending on the episode, right? Because uh, the chronicler will, as as Josiah points out, often reference: Are these things not elsewhere written? And typically, that is an assumption. Usually, of uh, if it's Second Chronicles, it's usually dealing with kings, and if it's First Chronicles, it's usually de- usually dealing with Samuel, uh, because First Chronicles covers the life of David pretty extensively, which is also recorded. Uh, in first, first and Second Samuel, actually, you see on the outline, David kind of takes over the show halfway through First Samuel, and it's David the whole rest of the way into Second Samuel. Um, why two different records <coughs> of the same history? Well, they were written for two different purposes. First uh, Samuel through Second Kings is really <coughs> addressed to the original reading audience, which would have been. Those Jews in the first generation captured in captivity in Babylon. And, and the subtitle of that book could be, What Went Wrong? How Did We Get Here? And First and Second Chronicles, as we'll get to in a couple of weeks, is written to that first generation after the return to Jerusalem and Israel. And the subtitle could very well be, Where Do We Go From Here? Uh, but nonetheless, they're trying to provide historical witnesses and evidences to answer those two questions, which is why, for by the way, uh, you'll see uh, a much more, uh, I can't think of a better word for it, but, but a negative view of a lot of people in 1 Samuel through 2 Kings that the chronicler is going to reflect on more positively. Both accounts are true, both perspectives are accurate, but they're making a different theological point. Does that make sense? So like, for example... Uh, everyone knows the great sin of David in 2 Samuel with Bathsheba, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. That sin is not denied in the chronicler's account, but it's not mentioned. It's not brought up because that's not 
the hope that he's trying to paint. He's not trying to explain the sin that led to the captivity. He's trying to explain the hope of a greater king to come. Does that make sense? Similarly, there are other kings that, that like Manasseh, who uh, Dr. Phillips will often call the Adolf Hitler of the Old Testament, a wicked, violent man. And second, uh, First and Second Kings will tell his story in gory detail. But Chronicles is going to focus on the conversion that he has at the end of his life, because it's hope. Both accounts are true. It's different theological points that are being made. Uh, and so for our study today, we're looking... <clears throat> at First and Second Samuel, which you may recall, uh, I would say, is written by <clears throat> three different people. I think this is referenced in First Chronicles 29, 29, which records to historical writings uh, of, of one book, but attributes authorship to Samuel, Nathan the prophet, and Gad the seer. And I'm pretty sure this is it. It's the only candidate we have, um, is, is the reason I draw that conclusion. And First Samuel and Second Samuel are going to... To, to really set before us, the primary focus is the example of David. David is the standard of kings in Israel's history. And so we'll look at this and its preamble, its lead up to David, and spend most of our time there. You see my outline on the board. Chapters 1 to 7 really focus on Samuel the prophet, who is going to anoint David as the king. Chapters 8 to 15 focus on Saul, who would be the first king of Israel, David's predecessor and great rival. And then the rest of the time is all dedicated to David. So let's look at Samuel the prophet first. He's going to function as something of a bridge from the judges of the book of Judges, of the time of Ruth, all of those types, to the monarchy. And so now is a good time to talk about what all his role entailed. He is the last judge of the people of Israel. And he serves as something similar to, but not the same as a king. He was, he was, however, very much in the role both of a priest and of a prophet. And so it was his job primarily to oversee the offering of sacrifices to the people and to pray for them by way of intercession. And I would suspect that Samuel learned a great deal about prayer from his mother, Hannah. Uh, it, I would encourage all of you today to take some time later and, and read and reflect on in devotional time the prayer of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, in Samuel, or 1 Samuel 2, 1-10. She has vowed to dedicate her only son to the service of the Lord for his whole life. That is the vow that she made to God. And now he is old enough and she has, she, has, she has weaned him and she's taken him to live in the temple and to train to be a priest. He's like four years old. And she prays for him as she's leaving him there. Now, sure, it's not as if she'll never see him again. The, the book of 1 Samuel is going to record that his mother did come to visit him, but he no longer lives with her. He's a young child. What are the kinds of things that you would suspect a mother would pray for their child in a time like that. Open open floor. What, what do you guys think? What would you expect a mother to pray for the child in a time like this? Yeah. Growth. Growth. Growth in the Lord. Growth spiritually, physically. Yeah. Yeah, for Prosperity. Prosperity. That he would do well. That he would be successful in this endeavor that she's dedicating him to. That's good. Anything else? 
comfort? Yes, absolutely. Because he's he's apart from his mom. He's apart from his family. That he would be comforted by the Lord. What else? Safety for our child. Yeah, protection. That the Lord would watch over him, keep him, keep him safe. How about wisdom? How about understanding that he might understand why it is that she's doing such a thing? You, you might suspect all of these things, and these are all good, appropriate things to pray for. And in a sense, she does pray for all of those things, and yet none of them explicitly. None of them by name. She prays for God to be who he is. The whole prayer is directed at who God is which is a little counterintuitive. Look at verses 2 and 3 of 1 Samuel 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. You can skip down uh, to verse 9. He, that is the Lord, will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. What's the point? The point is, the most important thing that her son needs is for God to be God. The most important thing that her son needs is for God to be God. That's why she spent her whole prayer uh, on, on, on that. Uh, that's, that's something that I would encourage us all to do as we read the scriptures. Look for attributes of God. Look for true things about God that we can pray and praise him for with the knowledge that those are the very things that we all need to be true for the things that we just mentioned, for provision, for comfort, for prosperity, for all of the items that we mentioned. They can only come to fruition if God is who he says he is. They are all dependent on him. That is what we need more than anything. This is why we sing in Be Thou My Vision, not be all else to me, what? Save that thou art. God, don't be anything else other than your word says that you are. I don't need you to be anything else in my imagination, God. I just need you to be exactly who your word says that you are. And this is why uh, oftentimes when I take prayer requests from you guys, and you mention uh, the, the passing of a loved one or the passing of a friend or, or concern about that sort of thing or comfort for somebody else, I will pray uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 3 and following, because that says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all comfort who comforts us in every affliction. We need God to be that kind of God for people to truly find comfort. Or I will pray for you all, Psalm fifty-five, twenty-two. when I know that you're anxious about a great many matters. Because, because we can cast our burdens on the Lord because he cares for us. And it's not just my privilege to do that for you all, though it is. It's your privilege and calling to do that for one another. And that's why we've, we've spent any time I get the opportunity to encourage you to pray God's word for each other. 
That is the righteous prayer that will avail much. We are a kingdom of priests. 1 Peter 2.9 says, No longer offering sacrifices like Samuel oversaw, but rather offering the very same prayers for one another that he was to pray for the people of Israel. Samuel was a prophet and a priest, both proclaiming God's word and praying God's word. And that is the same work that we are called to do uh, for one another. <coughs> uh, moving on to Saul in chapter 8. Saul, uh, Samuel did that in his priestly role for the people of Israel, but he wasn't just a priest. He was also a prophet whose job it was to teach the people according to the will of God by the blessing of the Spirit of God. But eventually, as happens, I'm told, Samuel got old. And he had to hand over the reins. Would somebody please read for us 1 Samuel 8, 1 to 3. And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judge over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and then the name of his second, Abijah. Abijah. They were judges in Bathsheba, and his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after Lacre, and took bribes and perverted judgment. Filthy liqueur they turned after, yeah. Uh, That is, they, they turned after gain. They turned after prosperity instead of following the word of the Lord. In other words, once again, in the cycle of the judges, we have bad judges. And so the people decide that they need something different. Would somebody else please read 1 Samuel 8, 4 to 8? I don't think there's any complicated names in that passage, if anyone wants to take a stab at it. Mr. Johnson. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. All right, so what's the diagnosis that the elders of Israel have for what, 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 what's the problem here? All the sons are, uh, they're not followers of God. Yep, that's, that's true. And so what's the solution? Get a better follower, uh, king. Get a king. The, the problem is the, these judges aren't getting it done because they're not following God's word. So what we need is to change the system. We need to stop following judges that God has appointed and instituted instead Ask for a king, specifically a king like all the nations. The problem, as they saw it, Opal diagnosed the correct problem. The problem is they weren't following the word of the Lord. But the problem, as the elders of Israel saw it, was not the heart, but rather the system. So let's change the system and let's do it like all the nations of the world do. Get us a king like the nations. We don't like being ruled by God through his word because these guys aren't doing it right. We want to be like the nations. So give us a king like they have. And Israel was called, though, not to be like the nations. Israel was called, we read over and over and over again in the Pentateuch and in Joshua, that they were to be a witness to the nations of the holiness of God, of the difference of what he, of the difference that he makes in the lives of his people. 
They think the problem is the design, not the heart. But what God is going to show us as the story unfolds is that it's exactly the opposite. The problem is the heart, not the design. And we see this in the king that is chosen, the king that is given to them, the king that is given to them as a judgment for their wicked rebellion. Saul is chosen in the next chapter, and he is anointed in chapter 10 to be the first king of Israel. And he actually starts off basically well. But it's not everything the people thought that it would be. Uh, flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 12, and somebody please read 19 to uh, 25. <coughs> Samuel 12, 19 to 25, Miss Berenger. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid, you have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. All right, so I should have set this up better before I had on you read that, and that's, that's my fault. This is Samuel's farewell address. And at this point, they've already recognized uh, Saul ain't getting it done. Saul's not the right guy for this. And, and they repent for their evil. And what does Samuel say? What is his guidance? First of all, he says, I will continue to pray for you. Do not worry about that. But what is his advice to them in verse 24? Only fear the Lord and do what? Serve him faithfully with your whole heart. He actually says that twice in this closing address. He says, um, where is it in verse 20 in verse 20 do not be afraid you have done all this evil yet do not turn aside from following the lord but serve the lord with your whole heart the focus is a change of heart this is his farewell address it and he wants them to know it is the heart that matters even more than the sin yes you have sinned but the lord is gracious follow him and then a few paragraphs later Saul's kingship completely falls off the rails in 1 Samuel 13, beginning in verse 8. And I'll read this. He, that's Saul, waited seven days. So he's in the middle of, of battling the Philistines, and he's in the middle of a battle. And before they go into battle, there's supposed to be a sacrifice offered. And Saul is waiting for Samuel to come and do that. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So they're there, they're ready to go into battle, no sacrifices offered, and soldiers are starting to leave. People are starting to scatter. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. <clears throat> and Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had, had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. 
I forced myself, he says. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. What's the problem? This is a complicated passage at first glance because we're tempted to wonder what's the big deal. They need a sacrifice. The guy who's supposed to do it's not there. So Saul does it. What other choice did Saul have? Why is it a problem? Well, on the one hand, because God said so. Verse 13, God makes clear, or Samuel rather speaking for God, you have not kept the command of the Lord which he commanded you. God said, this isn't for you to offer. Who's supposed to offer the sacrifice? The priest. Is the king the priest? Is the priest the king? No. God has said it, and that ought to be enough. That's all Saul needed to know. God gave him some responsibilities and not others. We are not to take upon ourselves responsibilities that the Lord has not given to us. It's not appropriate to assume authority that God has not given us. But I, I think the scripture actually does give us additional information as to why God takes this so seriously. It's kind of like Dr. Phillips in the, in the 830 sermon, and others will hear it at 11. He gives the illustration about the, the importance and the necessity of, of obeying your parents when they give you counsel. And he used the illustration, it's a matter of life and death, whether or not you stick some metal objects in the electric socket. All the child needs to know is mom or dad said, don't do that, and that is enough. But what I'm about to show you or share with you is if you had also told that child the inner workings of the electrical outlet and all of the cords and the wires of what can happen and the scientific reason behind it, God gives more than that later but what he had given was sufficient now. Does that make sense? This is just to help understand, why does it matter to God? Flip in your Bible over to Zechariah. This is one of the, one of the minor prophets. It's almost to the New Testament. We'll see how well we remember our cat kids training. Um, unless you're using a cell phone, which is cheating. <laughs> um, the priest is not the king, but there would one day be a priest who would rule as king. Uh, would somebody please read Zechariah 12 to 14? I'm sorry, chapter 6, 12 to 14. Mr. Duncan. <laughs> scrolling, scrolling. Thank you. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall... It is he who it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helem, Tobijah, Jediah, and him the son of Zephaniah. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Duncan. Who is the branch? Does anybody remember Dr. Phillips dealt with this a couple weeks ago in Jeremiah? It may have been months. It all runs together. God, Jesus. The Messiah. 
There would be a there will be a branch that shoots forth from the stump of Jesse. That is the Davidic line, and he will rebuild the temple and sit on its throne. That's a that's a a, a coming together of the priestly and the uh, the the kingly offices. He will be a king and a priest. In other words, by Saul taking to himself to blur these offices, to mix them together, he's actually blaspheming the Messiah who would come. That is why this matters to God so much. And one writer says, Saul's legacy is one of tragic failure. Even though he reigned for 40 years, he did so without the favor and presence of Yahweh. His kingship represented kingship apart from God, a king like all the other nations. While he was technically the Lord's anointed, he was not a king who represented the Lord or the Lord's kingship. He did what was right in his own eyes, like the kings of the nations, like the bad judges before. The problem was never the lack of a king. The problem was the heart. And Samuel says the Lord seeks one after his own heart. And that is the man we will spend the rest of our time on. That is David. Uh, I, I hope that we all know well the story of David's life, at least the high points. Uh, and so I'm not going to go in depth on any of these. I've divided David's life into three sections uh, for those of you that want to track with that. And so we'll talk about them briefly. David as the future king, 1 Samuel 16 to 31. David as the great king, 2 Samuel 1 to 10. And then David as the afflicted king, 2 Samuel 11 to the end of the book. And that's kind of the rhythm that, that's going to that's gonna unfold here. We've got him uh, preparing to be king. We've got 10 chapters where it's awesome. And then we've got the rest of the book that's affliction. Yes. Yeah, sure. Uh, David as the future king, 1 Samuel 16 to 1 Samuel 31. David as the great king, first, uh, 2 Samuel 1 to 10. And then David as the afflicted king, 2 Samuel 11 to 24. Uh, when Samuel is called by the Lord to go and anoint a new king, he's given one very clear and plain instruction. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. This is a rebuke to all tall people. Because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 1 Samuel sixteen seven. This verse is thought by many scholars to be the heart of the book. In fact, it's normally the first thing someone tells you about David, that he is a man after God's own heart. And you might say that the rest of Samuel is, is a cardiology report on David. It's showing his heart at various stages. And we learn a lot of things about him early on. Uh, for one, we learn in, in this section, David is the future king, that he's got a great zeal for the Lord. Does anyone remember what he says when he comes and he hears Goliath speaking harshly about the Lord and about God's people. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Who is this dog that defies the armies of the living God? And he stands up to Goliath and, and defeats him. He's got zeal for the glory of the Lord. We learn in, in chapters 19 and 20 that he's got great loyalty to his friend Jonathan. Uh, we see their friendship in chapters 19 and 20, but we also see that loyalty come through in the opening chapters of 2 Samuel where he looks for a descendant of Jonathan, a son of Jonathan that he might show kindness to and blessing 
for the sake of his friend. He is loyal to a fault. He's also loyal to Saul, who's going to be trying to kill him. And he will have multiple opportunities to stop him. And yet he doesn't because Saul is anointed of the Lord. Yes. He's loyal. It's an expression. Loyal to the end. Loyal to, uh, even to the point of his own detriment with worldly thinking by not taking out Saul. Uh, but it's, it's just an expression. Uh, and he's, he's willing to be even despised for the sake of the Lord. We see that in verse or chapter 29. Uh, you can look at that later. Uh, so that's David as the future king and all these qualities and characteristics he has. And then as, as the great king, it, it's, it's, it gets even better as we get into 2 Samuel. But let's mom, zoom in for a moment on chapter 7. Would somebody please read 2 Samuel 7, 1 to 3. 2 Samuel 7, 1 to 3. And it came to pass when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest around about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, God do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. Yep. David has a good desire here. He says, I live in this mansion, and the ark of God lives in a tent. Let's build something better. Let's, let's do better here. And, and Nathan actually says, go and do all that is in your heart. That's a good desire. But we know that that would not be the Lord's plan. The Lord actually says, no, it's going to be for your son Solomon to do. And you actually see uh, uh, more evidence of David's character that he doesn't fight that. He doesn't refuse that. He actually spends much of the rest of his kingship when he has the opportunity. He's not in the middle of war trying to be killed by one of his sons. Preparing the resources so that his son can do this. Because he cares more about what the Lord says and what the Lord's design is than his own. And David rejoices in that. Because his desire is not like Saul or the majority of the judges. He does not do what is right in his own eyes. Rather, he follows the word of the Lord. He's fully relying on God to keep his word. And you can read that in, in his great prayer of gratitude in the rest of Second Samuel 7. But sin crouches at the door and it seeks to devour Genesis 4-7. I quote that often to my kids when I'm helping them to recognize that uh, they, they have choices to make. We have choices to make. And, but sin is always waiting to influence those choices. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings went out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It's time for the kings to do what? Go to battle. David, being the king of Israel, should be going to battle. Instead, he stays behind. A bored man is a dangerous man. Because left unchecked, the human heart is desperately wicked and capable of desperately wicked things. Jeremiah 17, 9. And we won't rehash the whole events of the story here, but it is horrific. David takes another man's wife, he impregnates her, and then to cover it up, he has the other man killed and then marries that woman. 
And sometimes when we read the story, we can get the impression that Uriah, the other man, is just a, a regular soldier. He's just some guy. But actually, the way they identify him uh, in verse 3, is not this the wife of Uriah the Hittite? It suggests that he ought to be known. And we know from other passages of Scripture, uh, for example, 1 Chronicles 11, Uriah is listed among David's mighty men. This is one of his inner circle top soldiers. This is not just some guy. And David has even that one put to death. Why? So that he can cover up his own sin. Now, what is it that sets David apart? Why does not God do with him what he did with Saul? Because when David is confronted with his sin, he repents. When David is, is shown the, 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 the wickedness of his heart, he does not steadfastly try and defend himself as Saul did. Rather, he responds with a broken and contrite heart. Psalms 51 and 32, both written by David, chronicle exactly what was in his heart at this time. And that would be also great devotional material for you all uh, this afternoon or this coming week. But, but here's one last lesson for us all today from the book of Samuel as we come to the end of our time. David repented and was forgiven. I really, even of such a wicked thing, God still forgave him. I, I love verse 13 of chapter 12. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. I have sinned against the Lord, but the Lord has put that away. The Lord has forgiven that. But there's also verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. The lesson to take away is that even though the Lord forgives sin, and you have no need of eternal condemnation, there are still ripple effects and collateral damage that your sin will have on others, especially those in your own household, those underneath your authority one day. David's life will be dealing with the collateral damage of this for the rest of the book. Not just the death of this child that was conceived um, in this heinous way. But also, he says, the sword will never depart from your house. David has another son who rapes one of David's daughters. And he has another son who kills that one. And then that son who killed the first one tries to kill David and take the kingdom from him. There are continued ripple effects from the fact that David was a sinner and sinned against the Lord and sinned against the Lord at the expense of his own family setting these examples. Because David's sin affects his whole family. But there is no sin so great that could prevent God from redeeming his people. Flip over to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. It's the very first chapter of the New Testament. And it's a genealogy, which I know is the thrill of y'all's devotional life. But look at verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon, by who? 
by the wife of Uriah, by Bathsheba. Solomon would be another child later conceived by the same union that wrought havoc on David's life. The Lord is able to take even the most wicked and heinous of our sins and turn them into a blessing and turn them into good. How does that work? I don't know. But I'm telling you on the authority of God's word that God was pleased to use this line as leading up to the line of all redemption. Jesus is the sum total of this genealogy, a descendant of Solomon by the the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Matthew's not trying to sugarcoat this. He doesn't call her Bathsheba by her name. He, He wants you to know this is that Bathsheba. This is that one by the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So the lesson is, be on guard against sin. It can and will make a shipwreck of your life. But when you sin, if you truly repent, God is willing to forgive you because he always keeps his promises and he always remains faithful. Let's pray. God in heaven, would you help us to be like David? Would you help us to be those who have a heart that is for you, that seeks to do your will and not our own desires? Lord, would you also make us like David, quick to repent when we recognize our own sin, because we know that our sin will find us out. Let us turn to you for favor and grace and forgiveness and mercy, because you are a God who is merciful. Lord, would you make us ultimately more like Jesus, the greater son of David? And would you be pleased to conform us to his image from one degree of glory to the next? We ask it in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.